This last uh, Thursday, I had the honor of being part of the baccalaureate service for the second year in a row. And uh, I, was, I was mortified this year, though, because I was looking up baccalaureate. I didn't grow up with baccalaureate service, so I was like, maybe I should look it up, Wikipedia, you know, do that whole thing. Looking at it, started off in Oxford University over in England and came across the Great Lakes of the Atlantic there, uh, the Great Waters of the Atlantic, and came to U.S. to Princeton. And, and I was like, okay, that's great, that's great. You know, it's a sermon, that's not a big deal. Uh, but then it said it's a sermon in Latin, and I was like, I'm doomed. There's no way I'm going to be able to do that. So uh, thankfully... Uh, the Bible is, is the language of the world, is the language of mankind, and it's applicable no matter what language you speak it in, it's, uh, it's applicable to all people at all times, and that, med- that message is a message of truth for all people, and, and uh, so being able to share with the graduates from Penfield High School was an honor, and this morning I want to hopefully share a little bit of the wisdom of Scripture to you guys, uh, and even though it's kind of directed more towards graduates, high school, and college I really think it's something that hits home to all of our hearts, uh, even as adults. And uh, I, I was one of the books that I was reading as part of that was a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And it cracks me up because I was reading through it. He directed this whole book. He geared it towards high schoolers. And I'm reading it, and I was like, man, this, this is hit home at the heart of every adult that I know about living our lives in a way that brings honor to God. So anyways, uh, as, as you know, I like I like life stories. I like stories. I was blessed with a lot of stories uh, growing up in the, in the era before safety conscious parents. And the stories that I, I gleaned as part of that, I believe, were part of God's reward gift to me for not dying. And uh, so I'm going to share, just as a, a start off here, just a story from my childhood. As many of you know, I grew up in Georgia, in the mountains of North Georgia, on a, a farm. It wasn't operational when I was up there, but uh, you know, my brothers and I got to enjoy the chicken houses, huge chicken houses, and, and forests, and trees, and hills, and we just caught everything that moved. Um, you name it, we caught it. And uh, so we just have a, a plethora of stories, and, uh, and I learned a lot in retrospect about life from those stories. And I want to share one of, you, uh, one of those with you this morning. Uh, this one day in particular, my dad was in charge. And as most of you guys know, that's when the best stories start in your house. Dad, Mom's gone, and, uh, and Dad's in charge, right, Eunice? That's usually when our kids are getting into the trash can, dumping things out, you know, spearing, you don't know, want to know what, all over the wall and all kinds of other things. Well, this particular day, my mom was gone, my dad was in charge, my brothers and I, there's three, uh, four boys total and one girl, but my brothers and I, we were all playing in a two-story fort that my dad had built for us up in a tree. And uh, we were way up in the branches playing around, and my older brother Wesley stepped on a branch, and that branch gave way and fell down. And thankfully, he was holding on to another branch, and uh, he didn't fall at all. But we heard my other older brother, Andy, Wesley was about 10, Andy was about 8, I was about 5 or so, just to give you context of life. So uh, we heard my older brother, Andy, yelp a little bit. And so we went down to see what he was whining about, and he had a stick poking out of his eye. So... That's a, that's a good reason to cry if you need to, having a stick poking out of your eye. So uh, we went and we told my dad, Andy's got a stick in his eye. And so, of course, dad packages Andy up into the car and brings him to the emergency room. That's just the start of the story. It gets better. So uh, Wesley and I, uh, you know, we're sitting there while now dad's gone. So you can imagine what happens now. Sister Christy's in charge, and I think she's like 12 or 13 and Christy's in charge now, and, and which doesn't mean really anyone's watching us. 
And Wesley and I are sitting, I remember sitting outside of the, our farmhouse and we're on the front steps and we're bored. We're used to hanging out with each other all the time and we're, we're extremely bored and, and we're just sitting there and, and uh, Wesley, he's the thinker in the, in the family, the mischievous thinker. Are there any Wesleys in here at all? I don't know if anyone's named Wesley. Does anybody have a relative, a relative named Wesley? Yes? Okay, I don't know if this is true of all Wesleys, but in my experience, they've been like the, the, the black cheeps of the family, the ones that are mischievous, getting in all the trouble. So Wesley turns to me, and he was like, John, I got a great idea. And I'm like, uh, what's up, Wesley? And he's like, the little red wagon. And I'm just like, okay, probably thinking the same thing as you guys when you think about a little red wagon. No big deal, little red wagon. You know, that's just like a child's toy. But you forget, I grew up, in Georgia, in the north Georgia, where all the mountains are, and our farm is sitting on top of a mountain. And so all of a sudden, this little red wagon that has no potential to have any fun has all the potential in the world. And so Wesley says, John, we're going to take that little red wagon, and we're going to ride it down the road, down the mountain road. And only being five, I still had a little bit of wisdom there, and I said, Wesley, I was like, how are we going to stop that little red wagon? I was smart enough to know that we needed to stop somehow. And going down the mountain, it wasn't going to be easy. And he was like, John, at the bottom of the mountain, there's this pullout for, like, trucks and stuff that their brakes aren't working. It's like, there's a pull-off, you know, to, and it'll stop a truck. I'm sure it'll stop us. And I was like, good enough for me, Wesley. You've thought this through. And so Wesley jumps in the front of the little red wagon and, and uh, pulls up the handle in the front so he can steer. And I jump behind Wesley, and I hold on to him. And uh, we start going down the road, you know, kind of get a little scoot and start to it. And we start headed down the road, and uh, we go faster and faster and faster. First corner was okay, second corner was okay. These are windy mountain roads. There's nothing straight up there at all. And so uh, pretty soon, we're cruising, we're scooting along, and we come up in a corner, and we're going way too fast. And, and Wesley, you know, the wind is like blowing in our faces, and, and Wesley's yelling at me, lean, John, lean. And so we lean, and he's like scooting the, the little red wagon through the corner, and next corner's even faster. Lean, John, and we're leaning, and, and we're like chattering the wheels along the, you know, the pavement, Shh, you know, just barely making these corners. The wind's blowing in our hair, and everything seems faster and bigger as a little kid, but I'm still convinced we were going like 80 miles an hour down this mountain, and we're just cruising and going, and, and I don't know how it was like God's protection. This is why we pray for our kids, is because they do stuff like this, and so uh, we, we made it all the way to the bottom. We, we made it to the, the pull-off, and Wesley pulled off, and, and we made it safely and came to a complete stop, and I remember it was like almost silent, going from the wind and the hair and yell, Wesley yelling at me. It was loud and it's crazy, and then it was just complete silence and just hearing our hearts beating and us breathing, you know, and just finally getting our breath. And we're like, you know, we're, we're still alive. And uh, Wesley turns around to me and he says, let's do it again. <laughs> and so we get the little red wagon and we go right back up. We hike up to the farm and, and uh, dad's not home yet. And so we jump back in. Wesley's in the front. I'm in the back. He's got the little handle over. And I'm holding on to Wesley. We know a little bit more about what to expect this time. And so uh, we're just going to beat our, our time. You know, we're going to try to do it faster. And so we start cruising down the road. And uh, we're going around all the bends and the winds in our face. We're chattering. We're almost like drifting through some of these corners with a little red wagon. And we're just cruising, having fun, and yelling and hollering. And before you know, about halfway down, we see coming the opposite direction a red Chevrolet. Just so happens that my dad owned a red Chevrolet. 
We knew we were in trouble. And so Wesley, being the quick thinker that he is, thought we might have a chance that a guy coming the opposite direction didn't see two little kids in a little red wagon coming the opposite direction there. So he figured maybe if we ditched the little red wagon and we had big ditches on the side of the road for, you know, all the water and, you know, just to, to drain that, there's some large ditches. And so Wesley thought if we ditched that little red wagon quick enough, we might stand a chance that my dad didn't see us at all. And so Wesley, that's what he did. He turned off and we plowed into that ditch. We went down in a big hole there and, and there's a rock right where Wesley decided to turn into. And uh, we hit that rock and Wesley just kind of like, you know, just kind of went flat over, you know, and he missed the rock. But me, me and Younger and Lighter and being behind Wesley, the, the little red wagon did one of these kind of numbers, kind of like a little catapult. And I remember uh, as vividly as it was yesterday, flying through the air and looking down and seeing Wesley underneath me, like slow motion, and be like, whoa! And next thing I know, I'm hitting that rock with my head. And I bust my head open. I still have a scar right here on my head. And uh, my dad, thankfully, did see the two stupid little boys riding a little red wagon. He stopped, pulled over, put me in the back of the car, went right back to the same emergency room that he had just got done taking Andy to with a stick in his eye. And I do not know why. Where, where was Child Protective Services when, <laughs> when we need them? The reason why I tell you that story is in my 15 years of youth ministry, I've seen way too many uh, young adults and adults alike, too many people, much like yourselves, full of potential, full of promise, full of dreams for the uh, future, make bad choices. Bad choices that set us on a path that lead to places that we never wanted to go. Andy Stanley, one of my southern brothers, said that life is not the dreams you dream, but the choices that you make. And when I was in that little red wagon, it didn't matter what I wanted to dream being a five-year-old boy. I don't remember what I wanted to be. I could have dreamt to be a, a fireman or a police officer or a hippopotamus. I don't know. But it doesn't matter what I wanted to be, what I dreamed of being one day, because I made choices that set me on a path that almost led to my destruction. Choices matter. Choices are not neutral. Life is moving, and it's moving fast, as you guys know. And every choice we, we make is a tilt on the steering wheel. And choices set us on a path, and if we believe the wisdom of Scripture, those choices put us on a path that either leads us to life or it leads us to death. One of my favorite riddles that I like to tell on youth trips and stuff is a riddle about uh, we're going down a path. You know, you're going down a road, and you come to fork in the road. It goes two different directions. And one, one path leads to life, one path leads to death. And we have to make a decision, which, which path do you go on? You don't know. But thankfully, there's two sisters, twin sisters, identical in every way, that are standing there. And you can ask one question to those sisters doesn't matter which one, and that will tell you which way to go. The only problem is one sister always tells a lie, and one sister always tells the truth. And you have one question to ask that will tell you with absolute certainty which path to go on. Of course, you want to choose life. And that, or that's the question that we are all faced with. How do we, how do we make a wise choice? How do, can I know before I am in the wagon headed down the hill to my destruction? How can I make a decision that I know will set me on the path that will lead to life? Thankfully, Scripture is as difficult to discern 
as the truth that we have from Scripture. Thankfully, Scripture isn't as difficult to discern the truth from as it was from the sisters in that story. Scripture tells us which path to take. Turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And I love this passage because Scripture screams the answer to us. Is everybody getting there? Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is speaking in this passage, and he yells to us. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. Get that stuck in your heads. Enter by the narrow gate. He's telling us, guys, enter by the narrow gate. Which way do you go? Enter by the narrow gate. Why? He goes on to tell us about the wide gate. Jesus says, for the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And all those who enter, and those who enter by it are many. Why should we enter the narrow gate? Because the wide gate is easy. And the wide gate has a lot of people on it. That was kind of like counterintuitive for me when I first read it. I was like, isn't that the reason to go on the wide gate? Isn't usually the majority right? Isn't that where we want to go? Because that's the proven path that has been tried, you know, by everybody else. And we know that no one's going to go, you know, be the stupid one that goes off the dumb way. Everybody's going to go the right way. That must be correct where everybody is. And here it says the wide way has lots of people on it. All my friends will be there. The wide way is also easy. For me growing up, that was usually the way that I took. If there was an easy route, that's what I did. It says the wide way is easy. If the Bible was just trying to sell a book, you know, get on the bestseller list, this isn't the way to do it. Telling people to not take the, way, the path that is wide and easy and the way that has a lot of people on it. The, the word that is interpreted, uh, translated as easy here. Uh, comes from the root word means uh, a field or a place that cattle would freely range. It's full of food and water. It's comfortable and it's the natural place for them to be. It's the default. That's our natural state is to, to, to take this path that is easy and that is wide and that has everybody on it. But then he drops the bomb. Jesus drops the bomb. It's like, why don't you take the wide path? It's because it leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. How many of you have ever had kids, and then you ask, they do something ridiculously stupid? Raise your hand, parents. Have your kids ever done anything ridiculously stupid? Yes. Have you ever asked them why, and then one of the common replies that you get is because everybody else is doing it? Yeah, we've all gotten that a little bit. And then here, you can say, exactly. That should be your first flag. That should be your first warning that everybody else is doing it. Because the majority is not always right. The majority doesn't see where the path of their choices will lead them. It's like the majority back in the Exodus. Where did the majority want to go after God saved them from, the, from Egypt and slavery? The majority wanted to go back to Egypt and to slavery. They said it was better. That was where the majority was leading them, back to, back to death and destruction. Jesus says, don't follow, don't follow the majority. Don't follow them. The path is easy. That's what they're like. It'll be easier in Egypt. There'll be food, there'll be water. But that was the path that led to destruction. The majority of people are looking for excitement and happiness, fulfillment by the easy things. It's easy to take drugs to feel good. 
It's easy to cheat to get a good grade or to get a better job. It's easy to drink away your pain. It's easy to experience the part of pleasure of marriage without having the commitment that comes with a relationship. It's easy to hate. It's easy to walk in unforgiveness. It's easy to take advantage of the weak and helpless. It's easy to gossip and slander. It's easy to blame everyone else for our problems. Life is full of people taking the easy path, you guys. And we have to ask the question, where is it leading? Where is that path leading? A majority of kids, and I know you guys have probably heard these stats, but it's still, it's discouraging. A majority of kids are born into broken homes. Not homes that are like together and then their parents get divorced. They're born into broken homes. Majority of marriages are ending in divorce. Majority of people are in debt up to their eyeballs. Depression, suicide, mass killings are all on the rise. They are becoming normal. A guy named Craig Rochelle is a pastor I like listening to. He said this, normal is broken. Normal is broken. It's broken, you guys. Look at the path that people are on and where it leads to, and we say, we don't want that for our kids. We don't want that for ourselves. Why do we want to be normal? Why on earth would we want to be normal? The normal path, the easy path, I like to call it the cheat code of life. The normal way, the wide way, the easy way is the cheat code of life. How many of you guys play video games? Anyone play video games? I know all of our teens will raise our hands. Some of our deacons are raising their hands. Yeah. I won't point out which ones, but they're in this general vicinity over here. Yeah. I can't get onto them because I like playing video games too. I still play video games. One of the video games I loved growing up, it was called Command and Conquer. And it was a real-time strategy game. And the, the whole thing was that you built up an army. You built up, like, you had your base, and you went and you got uh, resources to build an army. You got money to build an army. And you started building up your own base and your defensive, you know, perimeter. So that way, when you're attacked by all these other groups around you, you could repel the enemy. And as you repelled the enemy and they dealt them more damage, you had time to build up your offensive group and, and go out and you go and take over those bases. And I loved that game. I spent tons of time on it. I was getting better and better and better and going to higher levels until I got to a level where I couldn't defeat it anymore. And it was getting so hard, I got frustrated and I was like, this isn't easy anymore. And so I decided to do something. I went online and I typed in, I googled cheat codes for command and conquer, red alert. And I found the most incredible cheat code that gave me unlimited resources, gave me all the money, gave me all the ore and all these other things that I had to mine to build my army. And I was like pinky in the brain, you know, just finally, you know, seeing the, the conquering of the world was finally within grasp. And so I built up my armies and I went there and I destroyed, meticulously destroyed all these other bases and armies that were surrounding me. And I, was, I had so many ships, like aircraft carriers, you guys. I was literally spelling my name out in the middle of the ocean, John on the earth. That's a, aren't you glad I'm not like the president now <laughs> or like a ruler of the world? Just doing stupid things because I could. I had unlimited resources at my disposal. But I learned something very important from that video game and using the cheat code. So all of a sudden, that game that I loved playing that was awesome and exciting completely ruined it. 
completely ruined it. I have never played it since. Not even touched it. I haven't even looked at it. And I realized that they call them cheat codes, not because I cheated the game, not because it got cheated, but because I got cheated. And that's the important thing to realize, guys, with the easy path, going the easy way, cheating life, doing it the easy way, the normal way everybody else is doing. It's not life that's getting cheated. It is us. We are, being, we are the ones being robbed. I gained the whole world in my little video game world. I gained the whole world, but I lost the soul of it. I lost the joy and the satisfaction and essentially the meaning of life. Mark 8.36 says something similar. It says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This to me is one of the scariest passages of scripture because it tells me that I can go to the end of my life and get every single thing that I have ever wanted. I can get everything that I've ever wanted. I can be married. I can have kids. I can, I can have a yard and chickens and a dog one day. Not yet, girls. You know, I can get, I can get all these different things and, and vehicles and a swimming pool and trampoline. And my, I know my vision of life is very different from a lot of yours. You know, I can go through life, get everything that I've ever wanted and get to the end and lose my soul, lose it all, lose the satisfaction and the joy that God has meant to be there. That scares me. That is tragic. That is tragic. John Piper, I was reading this book, Don't Waste Your Life. I was reading a a story last night in there, and and he talks about people wasting their lives. And he kind of highlights two different lives. He highlights one of of missionaries who, who serve the Lord, have served faithfully, and they die out on the mission field. You know, I think of people like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, you know, the, the gentlemen that were down in South America serving the Lord, you know, went through training and, and uh, you know, were trained, went out on the mission field, and then they died, young men. They died. And we're like, that is tragic. What a waste. What if they could have lived the rest of their lives for the Lord? That, that's so tragic. And John Piper is one of the, I'm going to just read it from the book here. John Piper says, an American tragedy, how not to finish your one life. He says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells us about a couple who took an early retirement from their jobs. Isn't that a goal of so many people? To work and then retire, and then you can do whatever you want. He says, they took an early retirement from their jobs in, in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51, pretty young for retirement. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot wave trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the end of the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my seashells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace the tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, I put my protest, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. 
at the beginning of this book in the preface, it says, some of you will die in the service of Christ. That will not be a tragedy. Treasuring life above Christ, that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. Craig Groeschel, again, normal is broken. If you want what normal people have, do what normal people do. Just stay the normal path. Keep doing what they're doing, and you're going to get everything that they're getting. Broken families, broken homes, divorced, debt, depression, suicides. Thankfully, there's a door, a path number two. And I know this rings true, and it's authentic. And I know it's true because when I see like commercials on TV and they're like advertisements for cars, I look at them, I'm like, you're just trying to sell me something. You're just trying to get my money. Sometimes I feel like that way with churches when we're taking the offerings. People are like, you're just telling me something, get me to come to church so you can get my offering. You know, sometimes I feel like we're just always, we're trying to sell stuff all the time. But I know the Bible is not trying to sell this because they, they don't make it sound easy. They don't make it sound normal. They make it sound very weird. The second path, it says, it says that the second path is narrow. It's difficult to stay on. It says that the second path is hard. It is painful. It is difficult. And the second path is lonely. Loneliness is sometimes the price of doing the right thing. Not trying to sell a book here. This is the ring of truth. And this is a question as a pastor when I'm coming up here that, you know, I ask myself, how can I get people who are on one path to get to another path? How can I convince you to leave an easy path that is, you know, has all the luxuries on it and everybody else is on it to actually take one that is hard and difficult and lonely? That's a tough sell. But the beauty of it is I don't have to sell it. All you have to look at is where does that path lead? And it says that path leads to life. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Imagine right now, if you, you know, I was, I was talking to the, the baccalaureate service, and I was like, imagine if you guys went back to school, and all of a sudden everyone stopped gossiping and stopped saying all the unkind words that you hear on a daily basis. Guys, our kids are being inundated by negativity constantly. They can't get away from it. Their phones are always with them, and it's always just a matter of picking up the phone, and it's right there in their face, all the stuff going on, all the drama. You know, we as adults, a lot of times we can get away from it, whether I was talking to Matt. Sometimes we can go to, go to work or go home. You know, if the drama's at work, you can go home. If it's at home, you can go to work. We can get away from it some way or another, you know. But guys, with our phones and our kids, it's like always right there, that negativity and it's around them. There's no surprise that, that suicide rates and depression is on the rise. But imagine the life that would be breathed into schools if people just started talking kindly to each other. It's the narrow way, but it breathes life. Imagine right now going home, and whether it's listen, hearing your spouse say, or for kids, hearing your parents say, you know, they've been fighting or something, and hearing someone say, I'm sorry. I failed in so many ways. I love you, and I'm committed to you. I want to get this right. What can I do to be a blessing to you? Do you think that that would breathe life? 
Imagine right now, I know how ridiculous this sounds, but imagine if Trump and Hillary, still disagreeing on politics, would all of a sudden showing love and respect for each other in a way that was bigger than their differences. Do you think that would breathe life into our country? Do you think it would breathe life into America? I think so. Imagine, I mean, I hear the stories about family turmoil. Uh, I can't remember the author. The uh, guy wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, and he talked about a family that had a, a family inheritance, and all the kids were, like, fighting over this. You know how it is, you know, cat and mice, you know, just fighting at, at each other, going at each other, see who can get most of the piece of the pie, you know, the biggest piece of the pie from the inheritance, just going at each other. Wouldn't it be amazing if one of those siblings just stopped and said, you know what, you can have it, because a good relationship with my brother or sister is more important than all the wealth in the world. Would that bring life? Would that breathe life? It would. That's what the narrow way does. I always say every year to the, the teens, finding a cure for cancer won't make the world a better place. It'll just make us live longer in the condition that we are in. But learning to love the way that God loved us, just imagine the way, the life that that would breathe. And the beautiful thing is that is something that every single one of us can do. Because Jesus said, I am the way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The narrow gate has a name, and his name is Jesus. When we learn to love and forgive as God has loved and forgiven us, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Jesus died for us. When God uses that truth to breathe life into us, he can use that to use us to breathe life into the world. This is my prayer for all of us today, and it comes from Isaiah 58, 11. You can just close your eyes for a second. And this is written to the Israelites, but I think it's a truth that is true for all of us today. Isaiah 58, 11 says this, and this is my prayer for all of us, that the Lord will lead and guide us continually, satisfy our desires, and scorch places. Make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, because God never fails.